Are you rethinking your life? This is the best time in history to work remotely or retire in paradise. The world's tropical real estate listings are right here. We know the protocol to narrow it down and point you in the right direction. Get the lowdown. Tell us what you're looking for. Via email, our address is printed in the episode notes. From Studio B and from the seat of my pants in beautiful downtown Cabaret, welcome to Tropical Paradise Waits. I'm Franco. You can find the cost of living, weather information, hotel rates, and airline fares anywhere. But listen here and broaden your expectations. Get the real feel, the human factor, hearts, souls, smells, vibes state of mind from those who are the lifestyle you won't know no till you go go tropical paradise waits for you what are you waiting for hola amigos this is don alejandro de la vega welcome to tropical paradise waits do you ever dream of living in paradise dream no more my friend if you are planning on living in the tropics, or if you are a full-on expat, this show is the show for you! Listen and learn how to make the best of your leisure time. It takes more than a plane ticket to fully enjoy the tranquil lifestyle. It is a state of mind. Let's live a better life! Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review of Apple Podcasts. Positive reviews help us rise up the ranks. Please scroll down and click Support This Podcast. Gracias, and enjoy the show. On today's show, listen to part three of the tropical nightmare from inside the walls of Guantanamo Bay Prison, Cuba, after 9-11. If you haven't already, go back and listen to part one and two first. As history has it, the truth surfaces some 20 years later, And this story is no different. Let's listen to more from pro bono attorney Robert Kirsch. I'm back here with Rob Kirsch to continue last week's conversation regarding Guantanamo Bay. Franco, it's good to be with you again. Uh, Thanks so much for coming back, man. I really appreciate it. No, my my pleasure. It's always always fun to be down here and uh, spend time with you in particular. So where, where did we leave off? I think we were, were we talking about the Supreme Court decision? Is that it? Yeah, the Supreme Court decision. And you said they, they gave them the, the, the right to a trial, but they, that wasn't necessarily the right to release them. Exactly. That's and where we were. Abs- absolutely right. So in, in June of 2008, uh, the Supreme Court decided that the Constitution and the habeas corpus rights under the Constitution in fact, did apply to the guys that were held at Guantanamo. And that was, that was again, uh, going back to the real estate document that we talked about at the beginning of the case, that was because the rights of the United States are so deep 
at Guantanamo, if you think of if you think of the rights under land as sort of a coaxial cable all wound up, all those strands of copper, the only strand of copper left that belonged to Cuba was a single strand of sovereignty. Everything else was America, America, America. So the court essentially said only American law applies there. That means the Constitution for the for these purposes applies there. Now, it didn't address every element of the Constitution, but it did address uh, the habeas corpus rights. For, for our arguments, Guantanamo Bay is part of the United States. For, for purposes of the right of habeas corpus, that's right. Yeah. That's, that's essentially where the court came out. So we, we begin uh, the month of July having won this decision. But as you pointed out, it didn't mean that these guys were free. All it meant was we now had a right to go to court. So now there are roughly 200 and by the by the middle of uh, by the middle of the summer there were probably 200 cases that have been filed. Now lawyers are really stepping up from around the country and and taking on prisoners as clients, filing habeas corpus petitions, uh, seeking uh, seeking security clearance from the government so that they can meet with their clients. The government decides to stay all the cases. So rather than go forward uh, with more than 200 cases. They instead decide to stay all of them except ours. Uh, and in, in, in fairness mm -hmm. to them, they, I think they stayed our case because the judge, uh, Judge Richard Leon, who had worked in our case, had given the government uh, a pretty good decision in their favor the first time around when he tossed our case out. And I think the government was hoping that he would be partisan rather than judicial. Right. Uh, and, and I think uh, to, go, to Judge Leon's credit, as we'll talk about later, he changed he, his view. <laughs> he he was impeccable. Yeah. I think I think to his credit, Judge Leon still believed that the president had the right to do what he did at Guantanamo. But he's a judge. The Supreme Court said these men had rights under the Constitution, and as a judge, uh, Judge Leon was going to enforce those rights, and he he gave us our day in court. Yeah, based on the law, not on his personal views. Exactly. He was he parked his he parked his whatever his philosophy or, or sentiment was, he parked it and he acted like a judge. And he and he, and he did it. We had uh, dozens, if not more than a hundred hearings before him over the summer of two thousand and eight. And by September on August twenty third in two thousand and eight, the government filed hundreds of pages uh, finally explaining why these guys were being held or taking its position on why it was being held. And that, that filing was about 50 or 60 pages of narrative and then many, many other pages of, of documents, uh, pieces of paper that uh, I can't really talk about. But so it was now like, you have something solid to base your case on. At least, at least we knew yeah. what the government was claiming. Mm -hmm. So uh, starting in August, uh, on August 23rd, we took that information. And again, now you begin to investigate. You meet with the clients all over again. Uh, you meet with, with people, if, in our instance, from the Bosnian government, who, remember, had turned these people over. Uh, you, you reach out to other sources. We decided, since we were not expert, this was the first time I had ever worked, uh, I had ever been given security clearance. And once you have security clearance, you're entitled to see classified information. I had never seen classified information before. Only a couple of my colleagues on this case had seen it before. So we did what we would do in any other case. You know, if I have a medical malpractice case, you need medical experts. If you have a, a bridge collapse case, you need engineering experts. We went and we hired uh, security experts. God, the law has a way to complicate things. In my eyes, I'd say he wasn't charged with anything. Well, then he goes. 
Well, that's but it. Simple we had as a, that. But we had a system, and we uh, we we were fortunate enough to have former military personnel, former CIA personnel, former FBI personnel, uh, one of the co-chairs of the 9/11 Commission, serve as experts in interpreting classified information in our case. We, we were very, very fortunate. These people stepped forward, and I will say again, largely on a pro bono basis. They weren't compensated, and to some degree, uh, they were they were taking positions that could have put some of their per professional credibility on the line. I'll tell you, I have to hand it to you personally, uh, because I would it would be so hard for me. I mean, weren't you intimidated by some of this and some of these people? I'm intimidated in the courtroom when I go in for a speeding ticket. These, uh, the court, the courtroom is always more fun for the lawyers than for the clients. I'll say that much. I guess the good lawyers are the confident lawyers. The, uh, we, you know, we had, we had these people who stepped in as experts. They were able and willing to, uh, to look over the documents that the, that the government had, had submitted to us. They helped us to understand them and to interpret them. And we essentially built our case. So between August 23rd and the beginning of November, we have dozens of hearings. Sometimes we're before the court in the morning and in the afternoon, sometimes just once a day. But Judge Leon essentially opened his calendar, made himself available to us. And we, we fought with the government almost every day because you know, in, in most cases, I don't know if you know what the, the concept of discovery and litigation is, but it means you have to share information. I mean, it had to get exhausting. It was, we, ha we had a team that was working pretty much around the clock. And, wow. and what you have to remember is a lot of the information that we were working with was classified. So we couldn't be in our offices. We were in essentially, you know, sort of set up, stripped down offices. We couldn't use, uh, we didn't have normal secretarial resources, although we had a secretary who we brought with us who got security clearance, so we wouldn't have to be doing all the well, documents. What ourselves. about not not to go off subject? But what about your living quarters? You stayed mm -hmm. right in Guantanamo Bay. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's no hotel there. Well, what actually, your living quarters like? you actually you asked about that earlier, and I never I never quite got there. So part of the expense that we incur, there is there are um, what I would call rudimentary hotels at Guantanamo. They've probably been updated by now, but when we were down there. We were allowed to stay on the base at what was cons considered a uh, sort of a, a hotel for soldiers when they were off duty. And if, if to think of this as a hotel, think of four cinder block rooms with with a bed in them, or two two cinder block rooms each with two twin beds in them, connected to a small central kitchen area. Mini bar? No, not not <laughs> quite. I don't no, think the, no the, mini bar. No. Quite, they hadn't quite gotten there no. yet. Think of a think of a 1970s cinder block college dormitory uh, serviced by government contractors, not very, very well kept up. And that, that was where we were. So that Television? Did you have a television? There, there, um, you know, I don't remember yeah. because there really well, probably was probably no cable there, anyway. There so, wasn't, there yeah. wasn't any time. There was no internet. I know there, that. There, there was, there was no time to watch stuff. No, there was not, there was not good connection. Wow. And with no internet. Right. And well, wow. well, the whole case had yeah. no internet. You have to remember because when you're dealing with classified information, only the government has secure internet transmissions. We don't have that. So when we, we did filings, this was like doing filings decades ago. Everything was by hand. Uh, we, you could not, only certain people, only people qualified as messengers are authorized to carry classified information and take it out of the building. The government did have access to internet on uh, the base? In, internally, the, the United States has secure facilities. In, in Free Cuba, there's, there's little internet only because 
there's some five-star hotels who demanded internet so you could sit outside those and check your emails but other than that there's there's no internet it is there 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 is internet available and there's cable available at guantanamo to the government uh that was not that was not necessarily available to us at the time they did uh in order to have our trial and i'll let me let me fast forward to that now so after our investigation we informed the government that uh among the things that we wanted to do in the hearing was have two of our clients testify now they they had a right to go to court and present themselves but the government was not prepared to bring them to the united states as you can well imagine because then there's a then there are a question of what other rights might have vested i, I would get i would that the government or no one wanted them in the United States. I think that there would have been some hostility, but not not certainly not universal. But there were some people because remember the information that was coming out of the government up until the day of the trial was still that these men were dangerous, right? That was what people believed. You want to believe what your government says. That was the information that was coming. Just out. in case, keep them out of my country. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. Uh, in early November, uh, we tell the government that we want our clients to testify. The judge uh, and the judge again makes things happen, working with with court security personnel and uh, the FBI. A secure internet video link was installed between Guantanamo and federal court in Washington, and it happened very very quickly. And um, I'm I'm happy to say that it worked. Yeah, you know, it functioned, and it it functioned so that what what could be said could not be intercepted. It was a secure line. So the beginning in, uh, I think it was November, the beginning the, the day after President Obama was elected, we went to court. That it was, was a total secure line. No one, it couldn't be hacked into, exactly. except for some 14 year old kid probably in his basement. Exactly. Probably hacked into it, yeah. So we were, we were allowed to, uh, we were allowed to have our clients listen. We had two opening arguments. One opening argument was made on, on the public basis, courtroom was open. The clients were able to listen because remember, there's still we still were not able to tell them what they were charged with because the information was classified, and we were prohibited from talking to them about classified information. We could ask questions that allowed us to probe and and get at it, but you have to be that has to be very artfully done to, so as you so as to not reveal the information that's classified. And there's several different languages involved. It, it all had to be interpreted. That's correct. Every Everything was interpreted. Um, so we start our we started our trial proceedings in early November. I think the day after the day after President Obama was elected, we had a public opening that, that the courtroom was open to. The press was there. Then we went into our classified opening. I made the classified opening, which meant no telephones in the courtroom, no reporters in the courtroom. The courtroom windows, they have those doors with small windows in them. The windows are actually covered with cardboard so no one can see in and read lips. And then you make the classified opening. And for that, again, the clients were excluded. So the whole case was considered, was was protected uh, on a security basis. And we went forward and presented. Uh, we had about, uh, I think, 10 or 11 days of hearing. I, I forget exactly what. Uh, the evidence closed. And uh, on November 20th, uh, the judge called us in to come and listen to the decision, and I'll, I'll tell you the courtroom. The courtroom was packed. It was in the ceremonial courthouse at Guantanamo. Or, I'm sorry, the ceremonial courtroom in Washington D.C. Uh, and there were the, the uh, human rights groups who have been so fundamental to the start of this case were there. Representatives from lots of the lawyers who were there. The press was there, and Judge Leon, uh, to his credit, read a decision that granted release. Uh, to five of our clients, 
he ordered, he granted the, the writ of habeas corpus to five out of the six men, uh, and essentially from the bench at the end of his reading his decision, asked the government not to appeal. He, he essentially said, you know, seven years being held without charge is long enough. You know, I urge you to go to your management and tell them not to appeal this case. Now, is this a good time for my question, what the protocol was after that? Mm -hmm. I mean, they released them onto the streets in the United States or they released them to their families? Ex ex extraordinarily good questions because these are the first... These are the first guys who, after a habeas corpus trial, are ordered released. They give them a bus ticket north and ten bucks. Well, now, now you get to the point of you, this is the complex part of the complexity that is Guantanamo. We've held these guys now for seven years. We have broadcast to the world that they're the most dangerous people around. Right? They're the worst of the worst. Suddenly, a judge orders them released. So now, uh, for these clients, three of whom were had Bosnian citizenship. We go back to the Bosnian, the Bosnian government and the United States says, okay, we're ready to send them back. You can imagine how the Bosnian government responded. And it was, it was not absolutely send them here. Uh, but after some negotiation, uh, so from November 20th, I, I believe that it was around December 12th or 13th, uh, we were informed that our clients were going to be released. And three of them who had Bosnian citizenship were accepted back to Bosnia. And it was, uh, you know, I will tell you, we had we had uh, people helping us on the ground and just hearing about the planes landing, taxiing in. And, and the first thing that happened, of course, the United States insisted that the men still be be bound on their trips uh, and treated treated as even prisoners. though they were free men. Well, they weren't free until they got off the flight. Right. Unfortunately, they were they were treated they were treated as as detainees up until then. But and they were taken off the plane and immediately. Uh, detained by Bosnian authorities because it will not surprise you to know that during the time that they were away, their passports had expired and they were arriving without proper documentation. No telling what happened once they were released in Bosnia. Well, fortunately, uh, because we'd done a lot of political legwork uh, and the United States had done some political legwork, the men were detained, briefly questioned, and then sent home with their families. So three of them by December 12th or 13th were home. Yeah. We had, we had the rest... We had two more who were uh, still eligible to go, and one man whose case uh, we appealed. And ultimately, I will, I'm going to fast forward to that one just because I think it's relevant here for your, your listeners to know about, that that case, uh, we won on appeal. And we, you know, we, this, was, this was a case where the government won the first round. We prevailed on appeal but with, the, with the court essentially saying the judge had decided that, that one man was thinking about doing things to help the Taliban and was thinking about helping people uh, travel to Afghanistan to support the Taliban. And the Court of Appeals essentially said, number one, there wasn't any evidence about what he was thinking. Right. And number two, even if he had been thinking that, thinking it and not doing anything is not grounds for holding someone for seven years. So the, the court essentially said, that's reversed. You can't hold him for So the basis. Bosnian government was under no obligation to allow these men to return. Mm -hmm. No, they 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 did it. Uh, I'm sure under some pressure from the United right. States, yeah. but they weren't they were not obliged. Yeah. Those men were returned. We then we then had to face the issue of what we were going to do with the other uh, the other two men who were eligible. So I, uh, some of my colleagues and I sat down, uh, and in in uh, January or February, tried to figure out who might be really interested in currying favor with President Obama. And what we decided on at the time, and everyone has to think back to this time, was that President Sarkozy 
had enough profile and enough of an ego that he might be the guy. France? President of France, yep. Is that the guy who was kind of a playboy, kind of a character? Uh... He was, he, I will, I'll, what, I will, what I will tell you is, uh, I'll, let me relay what the French exchange student who was living with my family that year said, referring to his president, said he's known as President Bling Bling. Okay, yeah, that's, that's the guy I'm thinking about. Yes. Yeah, I kind of liked him. He was, uh, well, hopefully, hopefully he'll fare better because he's having a few legal problems at the moment. But uh, President Sarkozy was interested. And on, uh, in, in February, I made a cold call uh, by, uh, I guess, a cold email to a lawyer at the French embassy in Washington and uh, was granted an interview. And on, on the 10th of March in 2009, I spent about three hours at the French embassy speaking to uh, a political representative and a French lawyer. And they conducted a very, very extensive interview with me about one of the clients. We were asking to, that they take one of our two clients at that point uh, who, who had some connection to France uh, through a sister-in-law that was living there. Uh, his family at the time, I mean, one of the, one of the sidelights of this that I should mention is, uh, and I'll, I'll give this one example. This, was, this man's name was Boumediene. He was the, the, the name in the case that actually went to the Supreme Court. His family was from Algeria. His wife had been living with him in Bosnia. But once he was arrested and sent to Guantanamo, the breadwinner was gone. They had no money. So the family went back to Algeria. And the Algerian government did what any good government would do when the family of a guy who's accused of terrorism comes home. They took away all the passports and papers of his family. So now his family's in Algeria with no travel papers or travel documents. So we contact the French. Uh, the French are amazingly supportive, as they've always been a great American ally. And the French diplomatic corps goes to work. Uh, September, uh, rather, uh, August, March 10th, I have a long, long meeting and interview. Uh, on April 1st, I hear back from uh, our contact in the French embassy, and he informs me that at the first bilateral meeting between President Obama and uh, President Sarkozy, which is going to take place in a few days, the President Sarkozy is going to offer to accept Mr. Boumediene to France. So we had we had succeeded. We had managed. And this was at a time when the United States had not opened the door to Europe yet. And we we had, you know we were really grateful to be able to work with our with the with the State Department, with the Defense Department, and with the French uh, Foreign Affairs Department uh, to to accomplish this. Some trying moments. It couldn't went either way. It was it was dicey, but honestly, uh, I think part of what part of what went our way is that President Sarkozy did want to make a good impression. I will I will tell you as a side note what President Sarkozy said at the first at the first press conference after announcing this was, "Don't worry, we have jails here too. We can handle this guy." The French Foreign Ministry immediately contacted me and said, "Don't worry, he's not going to jail when he gets here. He's coming home to be a free man." And I'll, I'll tell you, these people, they worked wonders. The, uh, I mean, you asked earlier about whether there were recreation facilities and things at Guantanamo. There are. There's a, there's a golf course, although it's a little dry, to say the least. You actually carry around a like two-foot square of turf when you need to hit the ball. You oh, put really? the turf yeah. down, put the ball in, and yeah. then you hit, it, you hit it forward. The only time that I ever got to really see and step onto that golf course was when I went down with a member of the French Foreign Ministry who was traveling to Guantanamo 
to avoid the problem that I told you about with our guys that went to Bosnia. The French actually issued a visa to Mr. Boumediene before he was released. So I went down with a member of the, of the French foreign ministry. Uh, he delivered a visa, which they had made from a cut and pasted photograph on the internet uh, that was published by the New York Times. They gave him, uh, they gave him his visa, told him that he was gonna be released and that the French had uh, arranged with the Algerian government to have his family put on a plane to France. And that by the time he arrived in Paris, his wife and children would also right, be waiting, waiting on the ground yeah. there. So it was, I, I, you know, I have to credit the, the, uh, the diplomatic work that was done uh, by the French government and the diplomatic work that was done by the Algerian government. Really, they really stepped up to the plate. How, how long were they detained before the release, an average? Uh, well, they had been, this was, he was released in April of 2009. So he was, Mr. Boumedien had the benefit Six of years. April in Paris. Uh, so he had been really, he had been in Guantanamo from January 20th of 2002 to uh, April of 2000. So he'd been there for more than seven years by the time he got home. And that's, but it was, it was a real success. A few months later, uh, after having said no to our fifth client, uh, France again reversed itself and accepted another man. And we were, we were able to, we were able to deliver another visa and another man was taken. This one, Mr. Mr. Uh, Mr. Boumediene was initially taken into uh, into Paris and then located in elsewhere. He went into southern France, where he lives today and works with his family, uh, doing very, very well. Our other client, Mr. Lamar, was settled in, a, in another French city, uh, taken in by the French government and, again, uh, given the opportunity to live, have, have money to support. And the French didn't just, the French government didn't just accept these people. They had to, they, these men needed support. They put them into the French uh, welfare system and, and gave them money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, they, they really, really stepped up. And then our last client, uh, finally in, uh, I think it was December of 2013. So now we're 11 years in was finally, uh, accept, was finally sent back to Algeria. And, and I will say at the time he was nervous about going back, uh, not because he feared the Algerian government. Uh, he was nervous about going back because he had been accused of having some connections with Al Qaeda. And he didn't want to land in Algeria, where in some of the outlying areas, there are still some pretty nasty fundamentalists who might expect him to be an ally. Right. And the, the, he didn't, the, the last thing in the world that he was interested in at that getting point involved with them. was politics. Yeah. He didn't want anything to do with politics. But ultimately, he went back to, uh, to Algeria, was able to settle down with his family, was living with his brother. And I'm, you know, I'm happy to report that uh, at least for, for those six men, you know, some semblance of normal life returned. So there were 800 and some detainees. Now today, how many detainees are left in, held in Guantanamo Bay? So now we're, we're down to around 40. Uh, 40? Once, once, once President Obama came into office, something happened that had never happened before, which was all the information on each of the, de uh, each of the prisoners was collected and decisions were made as to whether the guys were dangerous or not. One of the, one of the risks that we had during President Bush's administration was that you could you could be innocent at, and put into Guantanamo and you could be dangerous and sent home. There was no, there just wasn't a system to either assess whether you should be there or once you were there, assess whether you were one of the people who should stay. So the decisions were political 
they were not made on practical, factual, legal, you know, real. And most real of the charges terms. were hearsay. Like he discussed blowing up an embassy, or he thought uh, he had some kind of, of, of relation with Al Qaeda, or like you said before, he thought in his mind terrorist activities. So there was really nothing to base this on. Exactly. It was. It was mostly. It was mostly intelligence information, and that information was not. It was certainly not the kind of evidence that you and I would think of should be needed before somebody locks us up, right? It was just, it was essentially rumors. So, but the, of the guys that are left, I think fewer than 10 of the men have ever been charged with anything. But some of the, some of the people who are left are the guys who have admitted uh, being part of the plan for the September 11th attack. Yeah, if I could get detained for my thoughts, I'd have been gone a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will advise you to invoke your Fifth Amendment privileges on that, and not. Well, I've got you. I've got you on my side, right? <laughs> yeah. The uh, but of the men that are left, roughly, I, I would say I think seven to ten uh, are facing charges before military commissions. And remember, these military commissions were set up under statutes under President Bush. No one has been tried yet. No one. No one has been formally put, brought before a judge and a, a, a proceeding has not been run no one's charged some of them are some of them oh, are, charged, are charged but there's been no trial and it's we're, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of guantanamo wow. and these guys have been held at least since 2003 or 2004 by and large uh there are probably another dozen or so men that because of the because of the use of enhanced interrogation techniques the united states doesn't think it could ever try them they don't want them talking well you can't uh, there, there are doctrines that say you, that if you torture someone, you can't rely on evidence. Enhanced interrogation was used on some of these men. Right. I don't, you know, yeah, I've never had hundred percent. I've never had anyone explain to me why, oh, why, course, why they why. can't be tried. But you can, you can certainly, you can certainly logically understand sure. why they're yeah, there. Yeah. And there are probably some, some the, the remainder of the men. Some of them have already been uh, determined that they're they're subject to being released. Others are waiting for determinations as to whether they could be released. But again, you go back to the problem that we faced. You need to find a country that can accept them. Courts courts can issue habeas corpus orders, but courts can't say send them to country X because that's that's the executive. Well, well, the fact that twenty years passed and there's still some forty detainees, some of them probably don't even have family anymore. I think that's one of the problems, and you may you may have seen in the press the big, the, one of the big issues remaining for Guantanamo now is these men were you know these men were largely from rural fighting areas. They were not particularly healthy when they got to Guantanamo. They weren't they they weren't uh, they weren't subjected to the type of exercise and health maintenance regime that would have led to longevity. So you now have a bunch of middle-aged men locked up. Yeah, where are they going to go? Well, who have all who have all the kind of illnesses and diseases that middle-aged men have, and there there isn't really a hospital. So one of the things that's had to happen up to now is when the men have medical situations, teams have to be flown in to treat them. So we have to get mainland medical doctors to go to Guantanamo for some things and treat the men. And the United States does that; it does what it should. But you can imagine the expense and. I think one of the things that's ultimately going to lead, I hope, to the closure of Guantanamo and, the, and to putting this uh, this sort of blemish behind the United States is the fact that, uh, according to the published reports, we are now, as a country, spending more than $10 million each year wow. on each man that's there. Even now? 
10 million dollars and 40 each man and then before it was 800 and was it that much back then as well no i think it was i think you probably had some economies of scale back yeah, then. yeah okay but right it's now still a lot of money you could, <laughs> you, could, you could for fifty thousand dollars a year i believe put someone into the put someone into the maximum security jail in colorado so we're spending you know many 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 times that and it's i think it's time to shut it down and move on i agree rob thank you so much for this interview and and thank you for coming back and finishing i really appreciate it all right all i'm, I'm set it's good to be here and uh where'd you say the sunscreen was all right brother yeah let's go hit the pool Next week's show will continue our August 2021 five-part series about the island of Cuba. I guess it would be fair to say next week we'll talk about free Cuba, seeing we're jumping over the walls of Guantanamo Bay prison camp. I've visited Cuba uh, half a dozen times in the last decade or so, and, and I love the place. It's beautiful, and it just has... Uh, there's so many exciting things to do and see there. So we'll talk about that next week. And then our fifth week, our final Sunday of August, we'll sum it all up. But I'm going to wait till last minute with that because of the obvious uh, travel restrictions before, after, and during COVID. And the civil unrest that's going on in Cuba right now, things are changing day to day. So we're going to sum it all up for you in the very last week. Make sure you tune in next Sunday. Have you got something to say? Then use your superpowers and download the Anchor FM mobile app, A-N-C-H-O-R. That's our host. Search Tropical Paradise Waits, then tap voice message. Or email me directly, francogringo13 at gmail.com. That email address is printed in the episode notes. Smart people listen to podcasts. Tell your friends. We're at the top of Google. Tropical Paradise Waits is presented by Elusive Media. New shows on Sundays. I look forward to hearing you listen. Hasta la semana que viene. Adios. Think without a syphilis, ciao baby. Today's credits are as follows. Thank you to our program director, Don Alejandro de la Vega. Our editor and fact checker, they'll never know. Our chairperson, Wilma Buffett. Fleet Managers, Lisa Carr. Our charm consultant today is... The always charming Miss Inga Tooth. Tiki Bar Reviews by... Hassan Ben Sober. Our favorite divorce attorney... Carmine, not yours. Our credit counselor is... Max Stout. And our fashion designer today... Hugh Jass. And of course our download counter... Adam Ilion. If you enjoyed the show, help us continue by scrolling down and clicking support for this podcast.